I want to talk today with you about the story of Abraham and Isaac. Nope. Not that Abraham. Is it on? It's not on. I should probably turn this on, shouldn't I? Green light's on. Okay. So I guess the slide did advance. Uh, not that not that Abraham and Isaac. That Abraham and Isaac. And I want to look specifically and delve deeply into when God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac and the decision that Abraham made to do just that and how we make sense of the fact that Abraham is commended in the Bible for his faith and he's really held up as this patriarch of our faith yet at the same time he was committed and fully intended to kill his son. And, so there's that, Abraham intended to and committed to killing his son, and God told him to do it. And I want to look at that for a couple of reasons. First, in the final days of the web, we did a series with an an apologist named Ravi Zacharias, and it was really popular and generated some really great discussion. And if you missed it, too bad the web is over. Good news for you, though, the web is over because we're funneling more into our home groups. Uh, And so there's lots of great home groups. You've seen the advertisements around church with the empty chair, Uh, What's Missing is You. In fact, uh, the Holdmans, uh, Mark and Janet Holdman, just started a brand new home group, so there's room in there. And I am told that uh, newcomers get a free puppy, so (laughs) don't delay. But in the Ravi Zacharias series, he really delved deeply into the reasons, understanding the reasons why we believe what we believe, and being able to thoughtfully articulate our beliefs with a justification. Uh, his, his ministry, uh, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, uh, has this saying, uh, helping the believer think and the thinker believe. Helping the believer think and the thinker believe. And so that's what I want to do today, is help us think about these things. So we had the Revy Zacharias thing, right? And then we had, when Alan Ross was here last time, he spoke prophetically about the direction the church as a whole, not just our local congregation, but the Christian church is heading. And he said that we're moving from a, we're transitioning from a charismatic season, or, sorry, a charismatic season, uh, into a theological season, in one in which there'll be deep study of scripture and an understanding of theology. So there's two, the Rabbi Zacharias theology stuff, uh, Alan Ross telling us that we're going to delve deeper into scripture, a better theological understanding. And lastly, when Todd Westfall spoke here recently, he left us with the verse, uh, Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. At that point, it became abundantly clear that I needed to speak on this message. Uh, And I'll talk more on why that verse is important in a moment, but let me open in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you for bringing us here today, Lord. I pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive uh, a deeper understanding, Lord, a better grasp of the reasons behind what we believe. I pray that you would use me and help me to speak clearly 
and uh, let your Holy Spirit fill this room. In your son's name we pray, amen. So, yeah, okay. So, when I hear these things again and again and again, I start to think maybe, just maybe, God's trying to tell me something. However, I am inherently conservative in these areas. And I know some of you are shocked to hear me say the phrase, I am inherently conservative. But in this area I am, I'm very cautious uh, about what I say from the pulpit. Um, I give talks all around the country, uh, even internationally, in sort of academic and hospital settings. And those don't really phase me. I'm I'm comfortable with that uh, because I come in pretty much knowing my stuff. I know that whatever I speak on, I'm the expert, and I'm comfortable. Also, it doesn't matter as much as what we do here. Really, if you think about it, in the scheme of things, what I say professionally and things like that, it pales in comparison to the work that we do in the church. And so I'm very uh, cautious about what I say. I know know that someday I'm going to have to give an account for what I've said over the pulpit. And Luke 17.2 says, It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause these little ones to stumble. So I don't take lightly what I say up here, and yet I can't ignore, and so I'm, I'm very conservative when I bring something in, but I can't ignore the direction God's been leading me to delve deeper into theology and into why we believe what we believe. So let's start, though, with what we believe. And I'm going to do this in classic Frank Sussler style. In my mind, I had the slides back there. Show of hands, would you agree that Abraham is to be commended for his faith? Okay, we all agree. That's pretty standard. Would you agree that God is just and righteous? Okay, that's what we believe. Now... If that's the case, we need to take seriously these two questions. How do we reconcile those two things we just said we believe with the fact that Abraham fully committed to kill his son and God told him to do it? And I want us to really, this morning, briefly, really wrestle with this. Take that as a a real challenge for a couple of reasons. I think it's important that we wrestle with it in part because we'll learn more about who God is and gain a better and proper fear and reverence for God when we understand how those two sets of statements fit. We'll better fear and revere God, and we know that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it matters that we're clear on these questions, these questions of why we believe what we believe, because... Because, I'll skip that. It matters. (laughs) Trust me, it matters. I'll illustrate why uh, with an example. Um, I have a colleague who gives a a, a lecture, uh, and he gives a lecture on introduction to ethical theory. And he brings up and dismisses rather quickly what's called divine command theory. So ethical theory is concerned with what makes right actions right and wrong actions wrong. Uh, So uh, we all would probably agree that murder is wrong. 
Some of you think it's a gray area, but we're working on that. We'd all agree that murder is wrong. The question is, why is murder wrong? What makes murder wrong? That's what ethical theory gets into. Uh, it digs deeper, sort of like what we're doing today. It gets at the why. And there's a number of different theories about what makes a right act right and a wrong act wrong. But divine command theory says that an act is right or wrong because God says it is right or wrong. It's a divine command. Uh, somebody give me a, one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not, I heard thou shalt not steal, right? There's no, well, thou shalt not steal unless, or thou shalt not steal except if. I mean, it's pretty clear. God said it, you do it, end of story. That's divine command theory. The right and wrong is determined by the will of God. And so my colleague, when he gives this talk, and, it, and he gives this talk the same way every time, and every time I hear it and I think, I just get a little bit of a, ugh. Um, he says, and I'm paraphrasing here, of course, divine command theory, if it's right, then if God tells you to take your only son up on a mountain and sacrifice him, you do it because God said to do it. Not that anyone would ever do that. And he says it sort of sarcastically and dismissively. But I think, you know, at first I was sort of, you know, my first reactions when he would do that were, um, ah, he doesn't really understand it, or... You know, there's going to be students in the audience that are going to be offended when he says this, and then they're going to shut down and not listen to him for the rest of the semester, and that's a mistake. Um, but then I realized, you know, there's a lot of people out there that really believe that, that see that Abraham was told by God to kill his son and was willing to do it, and they say, why would I possibly want to follow a God like that? How can that be right? And there are people who would say, why should I believe in a Bible that has this example of a God and this example of a guy who's this father, this patriarch of faith, who's willing to do that? It sounds crazy. So what's your answer? How do you answer him? Well, we'll get into that in a second. But I think our answer can't be some sort of just quick dismissal of their concerns or some sort of trite, bumper-stickery, Christianese response. Because these are real people, people that we work with, people that live next door to us, people we run into, our friends, our neighbors. And we need to acknowledge that, this difficulty they have, and help them wrestle through it alongside them. Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. Amen? Amen. All right. So today we're going to wrestle with this question. How do we look up to a man who was willing to kill his son? and commend that man for his faith? And how can a good, righteous, just God tell one of his followers to kill his son? Uh, as Abby put it this morning, and I quote, God told Abraham to kill his son. Who does that? <laughs> and I, I have to say, I kind of feel bad because... Um, Max was telling me the other day that he was... My son Max is now in Crusaders, so he's over there. Uh, and he was, setting, he was saying that he's looking forward to being in Crusaders because he gets to stay in church and hear Marty Spilkus jokes. <laughs> Instead, he's going to hear about a man who was willing to kill his son. 
So let's start with uh, reading the account from Scripture. And I don't know how it's split up on the slide, so I'm going to come down here and read it with you. But it's, uh, if you're following along in your Bible or some app, it's Genesis 22, 1 through 19. And this is everything I do is going to be NIV. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took his knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called this place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time. And said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed, because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. So that's the story in Scripture. Now imagine that you're not a Christian. Imagine you're my colleague who thinks that this is crazy. Um, you read this, you read this account, and you see a guy who's willing to kill his son because God told him to. And what's God's response? I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Now, think of your friend who isn't a Christian. Running through their head right now is, wait, he rewards a guy that was going to kill his son. He was fully committed to killing his son. How do you explain that? How can a just, righteous, good God not only order someone to kill his son, but reward him for his willingness to do that? That doesn't seem right. 
I told you there would be some theology here. Yep. Okay. So, that is Soren Kierkegaard. He was a 19th century Danish Christian philosopher or theologian, depending on uh, how you want to parse it. He was widely considered the first existentialist. And next to Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle, he's my fourth favorite philosopher. <laughs> he wrote a book entitled, one of the reasons is he has the best titles for books. You look at Aristotle. He wrote books like Biology and Nicomachy and Ethics. And then Plato wrote a bunch of books with people's names like Gorgias and things like that. He wrote a book, Fear and Trembling. He wrote another book called Sickness Unto Death. I mean, these are book titles. <laughs> and when he wrote Fear and Trembling, it was in part to the verse that Todd Westfall left us with, Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my dear friends, have you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Kierkegaard wanted to understand the angst, the tension that Abraham must have felt in being faithful to God, in committing and making the decision to sacrifice his son, Isaac. So how do we wrestle with this and take it seriously? How do we answer those questions? Well, I'm going to give you some options. One, God's not a good God. He's more arbitrary and capricious like Greek and Roman gods, right? The Greek and the Roman gods were really powerful, but they were also really just as petty and vindictive and greedy and whatnot as humans. They were not good gods, right? That would be an answer. It would explain how God could have done that, but we know that God is a good God. God is a just God. God is a righteous God. So that answer is not going to fly. This is, however, how some people answer it, right? So my colleague, who would say, you know, not that anybody would ever do that, to him, that story of Abraham and Isaac explains why he doesn't believe in God. How could a good, righteous God do that? He couldn't. Therefore, God must not be good. Abraham never really intended to kill Isaac. Another option. This is uh, some uh, theologians will throw that out there that, well, Abraham really, this is, it's more of an allegory or a metaphor. God was just testing Abraham. Uh, and Abraham knew that he really wouldn't have to sacrifice his God, his son. That was a slip up uh, of theological importance. That's not going to work either, because when we look at the account in Scripture, well, one, it would only get Abraham off the hook. It wouldn't get God off the hook in that two-part, how could God uh, allow this to happen? But we can't assume that Abraham knew all along that God would intervene at the last moment, because the Scriptures don't bear that out. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. So God knew that Abraham was fully committed to do this. So we can't say that, oh, Abraham knew all along that he wouldn't have to sacrifice his son. No, Abraham was, was all in. He was going to sacrifice his son because God told him to do it. 
So that answer is not going to fly either. What will fly, I think, is something that actually Kierkegaard worked out, and that is ask a question. What if ethics, right and wrong, doing the right thing, isn't really the ultimate point of life, right? So when somebody like my colleague is hung up on this and says, how could a good God allow this to happen, command this to happen? That's the hang-up he's got there is, doesn't, isn't it wrong to kill people? And so how could God do that? He's judging God by ethics. What if ethics isn't really the ultimate point of it all? Is the ultimate point of life to do the right thing, or is there something beyond that, something that would justify this? So Kierkegaard came up with the teleological suspension of the ethical. Say it with me one time. Teleological suspension of the ethical. I really just wanted to do that. <laughs> the, ba- Whoa. the basic idea of the teleological suspension of the ethical is that... Look, we know um, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. No, wait, let me back up there. Okay, teleological suspension of the ethical. God created everything. God created the heavens and the earth. God created ethics. Right and wrong is a function of God. And so God is not confined but exists beyond or outside of ethics. And so God can suspend the ethical for Abraham in order to achieve his purpose. Teleological just means end or purpose or function-driven. So the end, the purpose, God can suspend the ethics for his goal. Does that make sense? Ethics isn't the point. There's something beyond that. God's purpose, what God's trying to do. And God, because he's God, can suspend that. Now, if it's... here's, Here's where people get lost or nervous. If God can just suspend ethics, that seems like a capricious, arbitrary God too, right? If he can just willy-nilly say, okay, yeah, you can kill that guy. That is not the sort of God you want to follow. But the teleological part's important because he's not just suspending it for no reason, rather. He's suspending it for a really specific reason, and this is important. When we're talking with our friends that are lost, this is where we get them to that next level, what's beyond ethics. So, yes, the answer for us. I want to give you the answer for us and the answer for them. The answer for us is found in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for it is by grace You have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. Works is ethics, doing the right thing, avoiding the wrong thing. That's not how we're saved. We're saved through faith by grace. That's the point. The point is not doing the right thing. The point is not not killing people. Let me be clear, you should still not kill people. This doesn't sort of get us off and say, oh, ethics doesn't apply. I don't have to do the right thing anymore. No, we do. If you love me, keep my commands. It still applies. But that's not the supreme purpose for our lives. Doing the right thing is not the be-all, end-all. It's being saved by grace through faith. We're saved by grace through our faith. 
And when God tested Abraham, he was testing Abraham's faith. That point, this idea of being in a relationship with God, we get saved by grace through faith. That's what ultimately matters. So God's not suspending ethics with Abraham for no point, for no reason, just for his amusement like some Greek god or something. No, God's doing it because faith, a life of faith, is more important than a life where you just do the right thing, where you understand why we do these things. That's radically different. When people are stuck at that level of, yeah, but isn't it wrong to kill people? And you say, whoa, what if there's something more? What if there's something that's more important than doing the right thing? That's where we get to our answer to our friends. Where we work through it together. We come alongside with them. And I want to sort of walk you through how you might do this. So we have the answer for them, right? They're sorry, the answer for us, which is that it's, it's our faith that saves us. And that that's something more. But you can't just say to somebody, well, clearly you've never read Ephesians. Because already they're skeptical, right? It's in the same book as the story about Abraham and Isaac. So already they're treading lightly. So you can walk alongside and acknowledge their concern. Yeah, I agree. It sounds crazy to be willing to kill your son, and that's a good thing. That does sound weird. But what if, introduce the possibility of an alternative. What if there's something more important than ethics in life? What if the be-all, end-all of our life, of our purpose here, isn't just to do the right thing, but what if there's something even more important than that? Is that all the point of everything? Is just to live a good life? Is that it? Is that why we're here? To do the right thing? Or what if the God that created the world and ethics itself wants to be with you and desires a relationship with you? That's where we get to our friends like my colleague. That's where we have that conversation where we begin to shift and explain that No, it's not the be-all, end-all. You can present the gospel in that way such that it's by faith we're saved, which is a radically different notion. And having that fear and reverence for the Lord who created ethics and for his purposes can suspend it. And lastly, that's where we can provide and be ready to provide an answer for the hope that we have. And with that, I won't close this in prayer, but will rather hand it over to Pastor Jim. That was very good. That was very good, wasn't it? Sounds like you should teach in a college. <laughs> so, <clears throat> there, you know, <coughs> excuse me. That was very good. I was just thinking as you were speaking, there were two things that kind of kept circling in my head. The first is we live by faith every day. Every day. So we come to faith, or we, we have faith and through grace and all this sort of thing Ryan talked about. We establish our relationship in the Lord. But also, every day, we have to exercise and we have to walk in that faith. And every day, we have to reach out to the Lord anew. That is how we walk our, our, our walk. And the second thing is that the Lord just thinks higher than we do. How can we possibly understand him? It's amazing. 
Okay, <clears throat> we're going to close the service a little bit differently today. We're going to close with some announcements. Sound good? So why announcements closing a service? Because the chairs you're sitting on are involved. <laughs> First, <clears throat> there's been a, the glove has been dropped. There is a challenge from one home group leader. I won't say who, but they have two children named Max and Abby. <laughs> who was trash-talking Phil McCabe's home group, who was putting on the Pinewood Derby. And they were trash-talking which, which home group was going to have faster cars or something like that. And I'm overcomplicating this conversation here, I think. But they were talking about which home group, between the McCabe group and the Spellacy home group, were going to have the fastest car in the Pinewood Derby. Now, for all of you connected, connected to a home group, and I, hopefully that's all of you, I want you to think about that in terms of your home group. <clears throat> there will be a home group total point champion for the Pinewood Derby. So your home groups, when they're racing cars, they're representing other home groups. So if you have a car at your house that is going to be slow, ooh, you're going to have pressure. <laughs> your home group. Anyway, point is, get ready. It's a, new, it's a new category, and just have fun with it. So for all of you who are in a home group, I think Al Deering, you were promising steak dinners if you guys won, weren't you? <laughs> so, so competition between home group. This is just a good time for the Pinewood Derby. Just know that that's going on. Home group challenge, and that's a new award. Um, another announcement is really about some of you. I need about four or five ladies. <clears throat> ladies. And men, you can't do this. Normally you could, but we need you to do some heavy lifting after service. But we've adopted, as you, most of you know, we've adopted two, two local schools. One of them is 95th Street School, and another is Madison Elementary School. And uh, 95th Street School, some bottles were assembled, water bottles, and they had things inside. You remember Andy talking about this in the past? Well, we've got to assemble some bottles today after service for delivery at Madison Elementary School. So we need a few ladies to meet room B. And I'm going to ask for a show of hands now. Ladies, we need four or five of you. Ready? On your mark, get set. Who's in? One, two, three, four. Okay, stop there. We're great. Andy, you got some of those hands? So in room B, it's got a round table. You'll know just which one it is, round table. And it's nice. We like that room for adults because we fit at that table. And some of the other rooms we don't all fit at. So thank you very much, ladies. That'll be a good thing. Andy is going to be dropping the water bottles off next Friday. Friday, excellent. And then you'll hear more about that in the future. My next announcement are about those chairs you're sitting on. So this week, the, the ceiling guys are going to knock out this room, which is great. Next Saturday or Sunday when we come in, we're going to have... Uh, ceiling tiles up, but we can't have any furniture in the room when they do that. So we need to get those chairs out. So if you would take just a few minutes today, right after service, and by saying right after, I want you to know me and the elders will be up here praying for people. So if you need prayer, that is the priority, right? Come and join us for prayer. But if you don't need prayer, if you can grab a couple chairs and put it in room B, we're going to start on this this wall where the Crusaders are. And they're gonna, a couple of folks are going to come by and take the things out of the pockets. And if you grab the chairs, put them in room B, there'll be a few people in there to help stack them. And we think, now this is Phil McCabe. There's a lot of pressure on Phil McCabe. Pardon me? Oh, I'm sorry, room C. I misspoke. Room B for the assembly, room C for the chairs. Phil McCabe promises that he can put all of these chairs in room C. Woo! If he's wrong, he's got his reputation writing on this. I'm sure you can do it. All right, so room C, does that make sense? Now, there's going to be a lot going on. There's a few of you who are promised to clear the stage. You already know who you are, so you don't need to worry about chairs. There will be some people with ladders, and they're taking some of the things down in our ceiling, which brings me to the next announcement. 
we have to get the lights in place for next weekend services. So if you are available Thursday at 6 or Friday at 6 to be here, start moving chairs back, depending on the night, and certainly start putting lights in the ceiling, we need your help. Okay, but you have to be comfortable on a ladder. If you're not comfortable on a ladder, please don't come. Or a scaffolding. Sound good? Thursday or Friday at 6 o'clock. This is a real deal. The more people that help, the faster we're done, and it does take a little time to do it. It's not necessarily complicated, but it does take a little time to do it. Woo, we got a lot going on, don't we? The following week, they're going to put it in the outside, and then later on our floor. There are lots of things happening. We even have a trip to Israel coming up. Now, normally, normally we wouldn't talk as much about the trip to Israel, but that does matter. That is part of our vision here. It's connected to the Jewish community. We want people to know what's going on. There are lots of the harvest parties coming up, home groups. Now that the kids are back in school, I mean, if you're not in a home group, this is the time to be in home groups. Lots of things. So I'm going to close with a word of prayer. If you'd please stand up. I'll pray. And close. So, Lord God, we do thank you again for bringing us back here. You bring us in every week, and if there's visitors here, Lord, we thank you for them. We appreciate the chance to worship you with them in our kind of our midst, Lord God. We thank you for the safety and the calling that you placed on this local congregation to be involved in all these different ways. We thank you for blessing us with materials in our building. But Lord God, always we say, we ask that we would see your path for us individually and congregationally. We would be sure of the next step, Lord, that we would never have a season where we wouldn't know. So Lord God, for this week, we seek you on those things, that we would be sure of that path. People making decisions in their life or people just looking to maintain their life, that we would be sure. Pray for, again, this congregation, the vision you've given us, and all of the people here. In Jesus' name, amen. And the Lord may bless you and keep you, and make, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you and give you peace. Amen.